0: I invite you to take your Bibles and open with me to Romans chapter 5. We'll study verses 12 through 15. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. It's been almost a month since last we were in the book of Romans. Let me remind you briefly um, where we are in the text of Scripture. And if you're visiting with us, we've studied verse by verse from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way here through chapter 5, verse 11, and we're picking up exactly where we left off. We believe that God has ordained not just the words themselves, but their order for the sake of our guidance, our teaching, and our good. Chapter 5 begins a section of Paul's letter to the church in Rome that has been called the book of justification by faith. If justification is foreign language to you, it is a word that simply means, how is it that we stand before God holy and not condemned? And the Bible's answer to that is simply by faith. By faith we stand before God not condemned. By faith we stand in Jesus Christ clothed in the things that he did given to us simply by our believing in him. And as we continue in Paul's fifth chapter to the church in Rome, we're coming to a section that Paul employs biblical and spiritual logic. And so you'll notice plenty of the words that dictate the language of logic. In fact, verse 12 begins with the word, therefore therefore or in light of because of some other proposition and so just be uh, in full expectation that Paul's argument will go in order and it will go in logical consequence as we study it together so let us turn our attention to the reading of God's word hear this God's holy inerrant and inspired word Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb is the law of the Lord. Let us turn our attention to it now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have heard you speaking in the text of scripture. Oh, Father, open our hearts and give our minds understanding. O Lord, that we might behold him The lamb who was slain, our redeemer, O Lord, our helper, and our friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. O Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oftentimes, the Bible acts very much like a mirror. And all of you have mirrors in your home. You have mirrors in your cars. And mirrors are very useful and they function in a few different capacities. One of the ways that they operate is they reflect back to us our own likeness, right? And I don't know about you, but I've looked in mirrors at times and I've noticed that I'll have something on my face or something on my shirt that otherwise I didn't know and occasionally I'll realize you've been walking around with clam chowder in your beard for three hours in the company of other people. And there's a bit of an embarrassment with the reality of who I am and the way that I look because of the reality that I see shine back to me. That's one way that the scriptures sometimes function as mirrors. They show us who we really are, not just how we feel, but they show us how we look to the world and they reveal to us the soil. That sometimes we carry upon ourselves without an awareness of it until we're shown. Another way that the scriptures function as mirrors is that they show the opposite. Do you know this about mirrors? That when you take and you hold a book up to a mirror, like in this fashion, that the words will appear in reverse? Well, they do. Test it out if you're a little bit skeptical. It does function that way. It's written in reverse. And so there is a sense in which there is the reverse shown back to whomever is seeming to look. And this scripture, specifically verses 12 through 15, offer for us the opposite contrasts of two different men. Two men that are an awful lot alike, yet two men who are in reverse one to another. There is... The one man mentioned in verse 12, that is Adam, a representative of all mankind. And then there is the other man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second, better, right way around reflection of the first Adam. And so I mentioned that so you have a sense of the dynamic of what Paul's doing. He's interested to show us who we really are and who Adam really was and then who Christ really is in the text of Scripture. Three things I want to focus our attention on this morning in verse 12 is the first, sin. Pretty simple. First point, thing I want us to see, sin. Verse 13 and 14, the second thing, the reign of death. The reign of death. Then in verse 15, the free gift. The free gift. Sin, the reign of death, the free gift. When we come to verse 12, we have a transition. And you recall, I mentioned Paul uses the language of logic. This verse is in light of what has immediately preceded. And what is that? Well, it is the testimony of the work of Jesus. Verse 10, if you look just a little bit ahead, is our context. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so what Paul has been teaching is that in Jesus Christ, there is reconciliation of a relationship that has been impaired. Where sin broke the bonds between our creator and us as his creatures, Christ has repaired it. In his death, God's wrath was entirely satisfied for us. And there was no longer any anger from him to his creatures if they have a saving interest in Jesus by faith. And so, verse 12 follows, and there is commentary that is in light of this relationship with Jesus. This is not irrespective or without reference to what's come before, but this is true and can be described because of what Paul has already said. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now that seems like something of a jump. But the thing I want to tell you is that Paul is describing what sin is so that we can understand what Jesus has done. That's just the first thing I want to tell you. So just go into verse 12 and verses 13 and 14 with a simple mindset that he is teaching you about what Jesus has done to reconcile us to God. Even in this, you and I must have a right and clear understanding of sin if we're to have a right and clear understanding of Jesus' death for sinners, okay? We have to have a right view of sin if we'll understand what Jesus has done as he died for sinners. And there's some propositions here. Again, Paul, in the language of logic, wants to teach us very specific things. The first proposition in verse 12 is this, that sin came into the world through one man. That's your first proposition. Sin didn't enter the world as a naturally created thing. It's not the work of God, the act of God. It's not the way he designed it, but rather it's something that man, the creature, introduced to creation. That's how it began. Sin came into the world through one man. It's a particular distinction and one that needs to be held with clarity in our minds. Because if we're to be redeemed by one man, it only makes sense that the transgression began with one man. This is an important distinction. If all are to be saved by one man, there is the mirror portrait of all falling in one man. And that man is whom? Well, it is Adam. It is our first father. The first man to ever live. The man from whom side the rib was taken to create the woman. The first Bearer of the likeness of God. And Paul is simply saying to us that's where sin began in him. In his heart, in his mind, with his deeds, sin came into the world. And he goes on and he makes the second propositional statement to us not only did sin come into the world through one man, but that death came through sin. Death came through sin. Your second proposition. And this is important because it gives us a reference for what death actually is. Very often, you'll hear people make comments about death that are intended to help us cope with the terror, the pain, and the horror of what happens before death and the loss of a loved one or something that has died. We may say things like, death is part of life. It's just part of the big circle. In one sense, it's true. Everyone experiences death. But have you ever thought really seriously, and this morning I'm inviting you to think biblically, on this simple ideal that death is part of life? It makes no honking sense. Death is the antithesis of life. It is the cessation of life. Dead things aren't part of life. In fact, dead things are, well, the absence of life, the opposite of life. They are militantly evidenced against life. They don't mix. You can't have a living and a dead thing. Not in a sincere and real experience of it. What's it telling us about death? What's Paul saying? That death came through sin. There's a relationship of death and sin. If you want to relate death to anything, you need to relate it to sin. Death is the punishment or the effect of sin. The logical thing that then comes after a man or a woman or a child's rebellion against their creator. It's as simple as that. They are united. Death is the logical consequence Of sin. It is indeed the punishment for sin. Those things are linked. And you go on and you read, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Your third proposition, the third thing he wants us to see, and he is proposing to us in the text of Scripture. It's not only that death or that sin came in through one man and that death is the result of sin and the punishment of it, but that death spread to all men because all sin. And you have to say, hang on a second, that's a real leap, isn't it? Because you're saying a whole lot more in that passage and in that proposition than what you've already said. Up until this point, you've been telling us really just. One thing in each of the propositions, and now you're telling us quite a bit more than just a simple and singular fact. You're telling us that death spreads and that it's a thing that goes from one to another and to another, and that there is a cause of it, and, and that causes sin or rebellion against God. And that you're telling me it goes to every single person. Why? Because all people have sinned. And Paul's saying, yeah, you've heard me clearly. That's exactly what I'm saying. And you may be sitting and saying, but friends, it just doesn't feel like it's fair. You've already told me that there's been one sinner, right? That sinner was Adam. He sinned in the garden. He took, well, the forbidden fruit. He rebelled against God and his command. He's the sinner. Why do I have to pay for what he's done? Well, it's because Paul is here teaching that there is a relationship between Adam the first sinner and then all of his children that come after him there's a relationship that Adam is a representative that he's one just like us that went before us and acted in our place before God and so we deal with all the things that he deserves Because the things that he did are the things that we would have done perfectly. And you're sitting there and you're saying, Hey, Pastor, you know, I hear what you're saying, but that bothers me tremendously. And friend, it's because you live in a democratic society. And you cast votes. And you like the power or the sense of power that that vote gives you. And you say, I didn't vote for Adam. I wasn't asked about this sort of thing. And you feel this way because at times you'll have a political leader that is then elected. Maybe even somebody you voted for. Sometimes it's the case. And you'll see this politician say something or do something or write a law. And you think, well, I would never want them to do that. And yet they've done it. And so we're in a mess. And this person who I voted to be my representative to do the things I want, they, he, she, they did something I don't want. Well, that's a very earthly and, well, natural feeling and sense about how things are related, at least in the lives in which we live. But that's not at all a truly full or adequate example of our relationship to Adam. He's not elected by us, but elected by God. God knows his heart, God knows our hearts far more than we could know ever the hearts of an elected official. You and I can only make guesses by the things that they say and the empty promises that they give. However, we cannot know the things that they will do in this, that, or another situation. Our perspective is limited. Our God is not like that. In his election of Adam to stand in your place and in my place, his wisdom, his knowledge, his perspective is perfect. It's absolute. The depth of the heart of Adam, the first man, the first sinner, mirrored your heart and my heart with absolute precision. The thing that Adam did in his freedom to sin or not to sin, in taking the fruit that God had forbidden him to take, is exactly what you and what I would do, whether any of us want to admit it. It's reality. It's reality. Now there are some good commentators that make a point off of the ideal of generation that Adam is the father of all and there is certainly the case of that in the scriptures. That Adam is the first or the forerunner or the father then does whatever he likes and then we as his children pay then for whatever he then owes and that makes good sense. We all understand that with Well, some clarity, I would say. But it falls a little bit short because our fathers upon this earth are not exactly 100% like us usually, are they? No, you need to see God's hand in this. And so we have some things being said there, some uncomfortable things that Paul's teaching from Scripture. And it's hard, really. Because I think whenever we hear this sort of teaching, we have the tendency to say, well, that sounds like something is put on me that I don't want, that I don't have any part of. Really, if I do anything, it just needs to be this thing or that thing or another thing. And that's how we think about our sins. We'd like to think that the clam chowder is not in the beard, even if it is. But the reality is entirely different, friends. I think sometimes we have this misperception... That we think that we are sinners, or that you know, that we're sinners because we have sinned, right? We, we think of it kind of in those terms, like, uh, yeah, I may be a sinner because of this thing that I did and, and that thing that I did. Um, or this other thing that I didn't do. We like to quantify it and to take and make a list in our minds and in our hearts and all of this sort of thing that we can dial back and we can enumerate this and that and this other sin. And that's an important thing, and I think Christians are encouraged to that. In the Bible, people are encouraged to deal very specifically with the particularity of each individual sin that is committed. But frankly, this passage of Scripture is saying something that a mentor of mine put it into clear words, Ligon Duncan wrote. It's not that we are sinners because we sin, but rather that we sin because we're sinners. You get the difference? We don't become sinners because of the things that we have done, but rather we sin because we're sinners. It's a natural experience of the human. It seems to be what Paul is talking about in the text. Death spread to all men because all sinned. We have a natural and original state with God and before Him in Adam. It's the nature of our hearts as Paul would write in the book of Ephesians, by nature ye were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, that's a deeper problem, isn't it? It's not that we're just confronted in the things we did do against God or we didn't do according to his word, but rather we're shown that according to our nature, we're born in sin. From the very beginning, from the first breath, even, that we were conceived in sin, as David writes in the psalm. And that's deeper because it means that in the very makeup of who we are, all parts of us are corrupt naturally by sin. We were born this way to bother, to borrow the language of modern society. In the clothing of our Father with the voice or the hair tone of sin in Adam. In the likeness of God yet shattered through the rebellion of our hearts. It's a bigger problem than simply five different things that I didn't do right. Five different failures. It's rather the truth That any man, woman, or child who is born, that they themselves come in from the beginning in a desperate need for a Savior and at odds with their Creator. How do you see that? How does Paul prove his point? Well, you remember he's already talked about death being the result of sin, hasn't he? He's drawn a crimson thread between death and sin. And that's what he's saying here in this third proposition. Death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Death is his cited source, if you will. It's his proof text. Is a child in the earliest seconds of life, even in the womb, subject to death? The answer is yes. Why? Because they're touched by a sin nature. Is a child seconds after its birth subject to death? Yes. Why? Because of its sin nature. Is a five-year-old subject to death? Yes, because of their sin nature. An adult? Yes, because of their sin nature. There's not a second of any of our experiences apart from Christ where that sin nature doesn't hold death over us with an absolute authority and reign. And that's a reality. And that's where Paul is saying, if you want to check my source, look at death. So the second point of the sermon in verses 13 and 14 is the reign of death. The reign of death. You may take note that verse 12 doesn't end with a period. It's continuing on and we get to verse 13. And we have what biblical scholars call a parenthesis. It's where Paul in the middle of his thought, in the middle of his sentence has something really important to say to you. And it can't wait till the end. like saying hold on I want you to pay attention to this real quick so you have this parenthesis in verse 13 and it has more propositions so let's turn our attention there for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given that's your first proposition in this second point here in verse 13, that sin was in the world before the law was given. And so some people would ask the question, well, how could they be held accountable if they didn't know? If you didn't know, you're doing a wrong thing, and you really get in trouble for it? And Paul's saying, even before the law, sin was in the world. It was already there. Sin doesn't derive from the law, rather it derives from that one man, Adam, and is felt by all those who proceed from him by a natural generation. Sin was in the world before the law was given, and then he continues on, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And you say, hang on a second, those two things really sound different, and they do sound different. And Paul is saying in one sense, he's saying before the law was given, before Moses came and the Ten Commandments were given, at the height of Mount Sinai on the tablets of stone, there still was sin. That law was given because the people were at the foot of the mountain sinning and sinning egregiously in idolatry. There's sin before that ever happens. And then he does continue on and he talks about this. He says sin... Uh, was not counted where there is no law. And so, what do you mean there? Hang on a second. Well, Paul is saying that even before the giving of the Ten Commandments, there was yet a law. How can that even be? How can that even be? Well, I want to invite you to think critically and biblically about something with me for a minute. We think about Adam's original sin, the sin that's in Genesis What happens? What was Adam's first sin? Well, to quote the children's catechism, it was, say it loud, eating the forbidden fruit. That's right. Eating the forbidden fruit. And if you ever thought critically about the eating of the fruit and that being the sin, and you almost think, well, was God just stingy? You now, I've got kids, and we have fruit in our house, and we have a, a baby in the house who just loves bananas. And I would never tell my beautiful child, no, you can't have the eighth banana of a day. I generally give it to him if he wants it. He can have it because I love him, I'm his dad, I want to spoil him. And it just seems like a thing that's a bit arbitrary, just taking fruit. But really it's not the taking of the fruit. The fruit itself is not the transgression. What's the transgression? It is him not obeying God's word. You shall not take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor shall you eat it. It's the breaking of God's word. It's disobedience from the creature to the creator. Do you get it? It's not just the fruit, it's the heart saying to God, I'll do what I want. So, what is the first law that reigns and governs over men that Adam transgressed and Adam knew he transgressed? Disobedience to God. As simple, as clear as it can be put not doing what God commanded and doing what God commanded him never to do. That's as simple as I can put it. And you say, I don't know, Pastor, maybe that's a strained or funny reading uh, of the passage of Scripture. But I don't don't think so, because I think verses 13 and 14, they go together. That makes good sense to me, and I'm sure it does to you. But sin is not counted where there is no law, verse 13, verse 14, yet... Death reigned from Adam to Moses. You see what he's saying? Here again, death is your proof text. It's your cited source of the reality of sin. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The reign of death, It's uh, kind of a creepy way to put it, I think. The reign of death, the constancy of death. You know, I believe it was Benjamin Franklin that says, uh, said something like this, most things in life are uncertain except for death and taxes, right? Most things in life are uncertain except for death and taxes. I don't even know about taxes. I've been in places in life where Taxes seem to be significantly uncertain. But death, death follows the crimson thread of sin. All persons, all men, all women, all children, themselves, all, 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 sin in thought, in word, in deed, and in nature. That means the delights of the heart, the things that we like, our our own tastes. Are corrupt. How sinful are we? We are corrupt in every part of our being. That's not to say we are completely corrupt, as as much as we possibly can be. But every single part of us, from the top of our head to the very tip of the tallest hair, to the very bottoms of our feet, every piece of us is touched with sin. The reign of death is absolute. It is the great thing that checks and displays and shows the waywardness of the heart of a human because death itself is the punishment and the penalty for our sin. What was the lie that Satan told our first parents in the garden? Surely he will not kill you. It's a lie. Death is the punishment for sin and it is absolute and it is something that all of us must wrestle with and deal with and come to terms with that apart from Christ on the day in which we die we're going to face the eternal Lord of glory to experience what comes after. The eternal punishment of the soul and the coming day where the body will be resurrected and body and soul come back together into one for eternal torment the reign of death and its terror is the evidence of sin in the human condition now there is something that really needs to be wrestled with something that we even gave testimony to in the creed uh, and that is that Jesus experienced death didn't he he's that second man He's the one that's the man right way around, not with reverse text, but with text clearly read, the living word of God spoken into the earth. He experienced death for us as a representative of a bunch of sinful people. The representation was in a different direction. It was the right way around. It was him taking for us, the thing that we deserved, and it was Him, the Lord and the King of all, submitting to experience the reign of death even for a time. For three days in the grave, He lay. And so we come to our third point of the passage of Scripture, verse 15 the free gift, the free gift. As we come to verse 15, I just want to say this is united with a bunch of other verses of Scripture that we could take time and we will take time with in the coming weeks. Um, But I just thought it would be a very terrible thing to talk about sin in such stark terms and not talk about the grace of the cross with warmth, clarity, and hope. And so this morning we're coming to verse 15. We're going to come back next week. We'll probably take up verse 15 again. So don't think, oh, pastor, you missed five different verses that are so good. We're going to get there. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Do you hear what's being said? Paul's saying exactly what I've already told you, and it's this that it's not like the trespass, in that we received all of the filth of Adam and it was only in one direction. It's not like that, it's entirely different. There is a free gift, one that you don't do anything for and you receive freely with no cost and no offering. Only thing that you come to the Lord with is simply a need. And that need is the gulf of sin. It's, it's the rebellion and the broken relationship between the creature and their God. It's a free gift. Not like the trespass. Not where you're having a thing thrust on you unto death. And Paul goes on and explains. He says, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. He's saying if the weight of sin and the death that comes from it, if that is heavy, if that's terrible, if that seems final, let me simply say to you, friends, the grace of Jesus is entirely permanent and perfect in all its parts. You don't pay any any of the, cro- of the cost. He took all of it on the cross. You don't suffer any of the pain. He took it all. You don't suffer any of the alienation. He had it all. And He freely gives it to all of us, a thing we don't deserve. He freely gives it to all of us, which abounds to many in a greater way. We'll come again to this next week, but what is one thing I want to leave you with here is this. The death of sin and the punishment that sin deserves and all the anguish and all of that, all that alienation, Paul's saying every bit of that can change. He's saying the free gift of Jesus' body and blood on the cross has made it so that all of that can be taken away and all of his wrath can be put away from you. And you can be reconciled. You're no longer an enemy in him. It can change. And the thing that you would receive is an unchangeable, wonderful, perfect, eternal life with God the Father through Jesus Christ, God the Son who died for you how much more how much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many has it abounded for you and Christians you better say amen because this is what we have in Christ a grace that will never be taken a life that is eternal and a hope that will be rewarded in the fulfillment of all of his promises and a life before the face of God called sons, daughters, beloved children, a bride purified. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and the teaching, Lord, that you give to your people. Lord, that we're not intended to be children who bumble about in this world in the darkness, but that, Lord, you give the light of the gospel of Jesus into the darkness of our lives and our souls and the waywardness of our hearts. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to know Jesus. Lord, if there are some this morning that don't know him, Lord, I pray that they would trust on him. Lord, that they would be translated from death into life. And Father, for those who know Christ, who have received him, Lord, I pray that they will rejoice with hearts full oh lord and that they would find themselves secure fearless before your throne oh father in the blood of christ father we ask that you'd be with us as we continue to worship you lord that you would help us to receive the table rightly oh lord that we would be a people who would worship you spiritually we pray all this in jesus name amen